when the separation between the dollar and gold occurred and the printing of dollars just continued and continued, at that point, a, a titanic shift occurred because the fiat money printer was then weaponized. They leaned into corporate and industry, which benefits and profits far more off of Doritos than they do off me. In this episode, I'm speaking with investigative journalist and author Matthew Lishak, who has recently written a book called Fiat Food. The premise of the book is that the food system that we're dealing with today, that's awash in low-quality ingredients and refined foods like seed oils, and relates back to economic changes that happened in the 1970s, specifically the removal of the US dollar from a gold standard backing. This is a very interesting uh, interview, and we go into a lot of the societal level um, impacts and contributions to how we got to where we are from a a nutritionally bankrupted um, food system. If you enjoyed this episode, then check out my episodes with Texas Slim, who has also uh, raised these similar ideas. Hope you enjoy it, and now on to the podcast. Okay, Matthew, thank you for coming on the Regenerative Health Podcast. Thank you for having me, Max. I'm excited. So you have written a, a very interesting book that was released not uh, long ago called Fiat Food. And the title of the book is a an expansion on a book chapter that was written by uh, a gentleman called Saifedean Amus. And I read that book chapter, a couple of people sent it to me, and that goes in depth about the processed food uh, environment, the processed food industry, and more importantly, the monetary incentives behind why we've uh, got uh, such a behemoth processed food industry. And for me, that's relevant because I'm a medical doctor seeing the beginning and the end consequences of metabolic diseases, type 2 diabetes, chronic kidney disease, uh, and and all these problems that are gumming up our, our healthcare system. And, and so when I read and I found out that, Matthew, you had written a whole book about this chapter, I immediately bought it. And it is a fascinating read. And it drills down into some amazingly interesting rabbit holes about how we collectively as a society uh, have arrived at where we are. So I, I listened to one of your earlier podcasts and you have your own personal story. And I really think that's a great place to start. I like to go through people's personal stories because it, it really gives us a good intro. So maybe you can tell us about your health journey and then how you ended up writing a book about uh, fiat food. I grew up as a, a little boy in the 80s. Um, I'm 40, 46 right now. So I was on a cusp of when the nutritional guidelines began coming up. In my teenage years of, uh, say, 19, I think it was 1992, the, the food pyramid came out. And that told everybody to eat a lot of grains, cut down on saturated fat. My, my parents loved me. They wanted me to be healthy. So they began feeding me a lot of grains, where in the past, our family would have more meat the latest health told us that that was killing people. So my mom kind of transitioned into some of these more processed foods. Um, I developed what I would consider to be an addiction to sugar and flour. I mean, I 
ate so much processed garbage, including seed oils, that we were being told was healthy. I I don't know uh, your demographic of your audience, but in the 90s, margarine was considered a health food, as were vegetable oils and sugar wasn't considered bad in moderation. But moderating sugar for me was not an easy job. I don't know who it is for. Anyways, by um, age of 15, I got a cancer. I got osteogenic sarcoma in my leg. And I remember, and I had eaten a lot of bad food. Like I wasn't just a moderate junk food eater. I had eaten tremendous amounts of sugar and flour. And uh, I remember drinking Mountain Dew, a lot of Mountain Dew. And I remember lying in a hospital bed, feeling like I had done something wrong to my body. And that's why I was sick. And asking the doctors, you know, how, how did this happen to me? And they said, um, they're great doctors, but they were like, we don't know why people get cancer. It could be genetic. It could be environment. We just really don't know. I did know. Like intuitively, my body knew that I had just been treating it um, like a trash can. And that spurred a real passion to try to find out what is healthy. How do I stay healthy? I don't want to be sick again. Cancer's no joke. Um, it's not good. You don't want it. I definitely did not want it. And I wanted to try to live a life that would keep me upright. Um, I became a journalist. And my main job was to follow national news as it broke around the country, in particular mass shooting. So I worked at the fifth biggest paper in America, the New York Daily News. And I would parachute into these different areas and cover crime. I'd also cover political scandals quite a bit. Um, so I, I've always had a skeptical view of, of power centers. Um, and this increased with COVID when, you know, I'm, I've become accustomed to politicians lying and you know, deceiving the public in various ways, but, uh, COVID, it seemed like they had jumped the shark. It was like, they weren't even really, they were no longer pretending to have our best interests at heart. I mean, I remember advice early on with COVID that when it was clear that overweight people were being affected, advice to stay home, uh, maybe it's a good time to eat chocolate and get takeout. And there's very little mention of diet. Um, a vaccine's a whole nother story. But that sent me, somehow I found uh, on a friend, recommendation from a friend, Saifedean Amus's book, Bitcoin Standard, which led me to see to, to read the Fiat Standard, where I found the chapter on food, where uh, Amus posited this theory that our food supply was being manipulated to make inflation appear as though it weren't as much of a factor. And I initially believed that to be a ludicrous theory. I thought, wow, I respect Saifedean so much in terms of his economics, but this is a completely insane belief. But Saif had earned a lot of respect from his previous work. So I, I began doing a deep dive on that chapter. And what I realized was that Saif wasn't exaggerating in fact, I would consider his argument understated in that chapter. And I decided to write a book. I, I reached out to say if I let him know my credentials and who I was. And he, we partnered on expanding his chapter into a book where 
from an investigative reporter standpoint, where we examine the exact cause and how this happened to our food supply. And I think, I think, I think the results from my perspective were just remarkable when I was able to peel the curtain back because it isn't even as if it's some hidden conspiracy. It's right there in front of you and you just, you just need to see it and to put it together. And when you put it all together and you stand back a little bit, you understand why your neighbor standing in line at Walmart weighs 400 pounds, but their grocery cart is full of ice cream and snack wells. So that was it's been my my journey, but my journey my journey continues. I've I've been carnivore now for almost a year. I'm still drinking coffee, so I'm not you know some carnivores find that to be non carnivorish. I have my little weaknesses, but I found um, since I've cut out eating processed foods and sugar, I personally also found found the health effects to be be amazing. Yeah, and you're in fine company when it comes to journalists writing about nutrition. And Gary Taubes wrote a, a book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, that was it kind of really pulled a lot of doctors down the, the low-carbon metabolic medicine pathway. And then Nina Teicholz has written um, A Big Fat uh, Surprise, which, again, has, has kind of really unveiled for us as, as practitioners what um, we weren't able to see, and maybe that's because we don't lack we lack the specific uh, training in that area. But um, I, just like I like to speak to engineers on medical and scientific areas because they give a fresh perspective, I think what you've done with your book and, and journalists arriving at these topics with your fresh perspective is just it's a it's amazing, and what what you can um, uncover. So I really want to walk people through this whole story because. It, it it actually needs a fair bit of time to do it justice. And I think a good place to start, which is kind of where you where you start in the book, is is really framing what the health status of your country was. And again, this book is written mostly from the perspective of the United States, but um it's relevant throughout the world because we in Australia um, and UK and every other country essentially have followed the, the US lead when it, when it has come to uh, dietary recommendations. So um, what you mentioned and you, you, you put make the point that in 1910, uh, influenza was the, the, the most frequent cause of death and um, heart disease, when, when I say heart disease, I mean atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, so um, coronary atherosclerosis was basically unheard of. And uh, Dr. Chris Kenobi has done an amazing um, talk about this. Um, physicians didn't hadn't seen heart attacks. It was so rare; it was almost un, unheard of. Um, that was the kind of uh, kind of the background to to everything. Yet, um, meat consumption. Um, I mean, people ate meat. People ate animal fats. So, talk to us about um, this kind of prelude to everything that happened later in in, in the nineteen seventies and, and and before and on, onwards. Before the 1900s, Amer Americans weren't confused about what to eat. There wasn't really big debates about it. If you could find meat, you ate meat, particularly red meat. If you couldn't, and there was an issue of cost or finding the right nutrients, that's a different story. Then maybe you would eat some plants, or but it was always considered peasant food. Um, People who had the beans ate meat. There didn't need to be 
thousands of podcasts and books on this subject because much like a lion knows what to eat and a, a cat knows what to eat when they're outside, um, people knew what to eat. To, to eat. It, 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 it wasn't debatable. And not coincidentally, metabolic disease was virtually unheard of. I mean, it, it happened, but it was very, very rare. Um, as heart health was significantly um, better than it, it is today. And what we saw in the beginning of the century was a shift where food or products that were not considered fit for human consumption began being marketed as food. And this was a very sophisticated campaign. I, I like to go back to the seed oils and Crisco because that was one of the really early movers. And for the first time, so when people ate, ate margarine or Crisco in the beginning, they didn't recognize it as food. Particularly in, in New York, there were, there, were, there were riots over retailers selling margarine and telling people it was butter. And there were laws passed and politicians were very upset about this. How could they push this, this food on people it's not, and, and tell them it's food? Because it's not food. It's a substitute. Um, but it was cheaper. And when World War II happened, people didn't have as much disposable income. Margarine became more prevalent. Crisco, um, for thousands and thousands of years, people cooked with lard or animal fats. Um, but Procter and Gamble had an issue once, you know, they were candle makers and they used the wax, the cotton seeds, and they used it as industrial lubricant. But suddenly they saw an entire new market that they could tap into with this cotton seed waste product. and they were able to convince people that this was food. And they didn't just, there was a very clever marketing campaign that went into this, but it was also through funding um, nutrition science to justify their, you know, to justify, they, they, they weaponized nutrition science to basically have press releases that would then get printed into articles of the day that it was healthy. For people, and that lard was an unsophisticated kind of backwards way of of cooking. So those were the early early precursors to the change in the food supply. But I, I wanted to mention them because it's notable that they were really the first. Up until up until then, people ate animal products and occasionally berries or honey if you could find it. But grains were rare. Sugar was was consumed, but not nearly to this extent. Um, and people were much healthier. Yeah. And, and it's a great point you make because it was insidiously added into the food supply, these, uh, the hydrogenated cottonseed oil. And I know exactly what you're referring to. They use tactics like, um, like marketing to 
Jewish families in New York because it was, yeah. you know, this is a kosher cooking vegetable shortening. It's more hygienic. Um, they they made uh, cookbooks and they passed them around the housewives and said, if you want to do the right thing by your family, you're going to use vegetable shortening, not that dirty pork lard. So that there was these it's interesting to think that even that far back, they were using these corporate tactics to kind of weasel that waste product um, into the, the human food supply. And um, as you say, that it was it was uh, essentially promoted in in the place of 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 lard. And you, we're going to talk about um, Eisenhower's heart attack, but uh, I actually think that that was one of the key reasons why uh, atherosclerotic heart disease actually started taking off. Um, which was the the increased consumption of of uh, cottonseed oil, and what about soy oil? Because that was another product that um, again people would have eaten very little of, but now soybean oil reflects one of the most consumed uh, polyunsaturated oils um, and cooking oils in America. So, how does the the soy fit into it? Yes, soy was also considered a a waste product um, that people would eat in times of famine but and i know we're going to get into the seventh day adventist church later they were really instrumental in promoting soy as an alternative to meat to stem human reproduction and carnal carnal feelings um just to kind of step back for a quick moment you mentioned nina teichels and she in her reporting she's a fantastic reporter she's author of big fat surprise she found and she's the first one to discover this, I think, that the American Heart Association was literally created by Procter & Gamble. American Heart Association was a very small organization. And then Procter & Gamble donated millions of dollars to it. At the time, which would have been a gazillion dollars, gave it the ability to expand. I don't know the exact dollar amount. Gave it the ability to expand. And shockingly, they began... Uh, suggesting that people switch from animal fat-based cooking oils to Crisco. <laughs> it's not a coincidence. Um, in terms of soy, it's, again, it's a, another very, very cheap, nutrient-deplete plant-based product that if people saw how it was made, I think that they would never, especially like soy lecithin, they would never consume it and they would understand that it's not a food that's fit for human consumption. I mean, it has yeah. to be, it's, it's very, it's disgusting. I don't want to make your audience nauseous. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's not. No, it isn't. And again, this idea of it's not voluntarily selected by um, human free choice. If you have, if you have an option um, and it's not able to be readily consumed, manufactured by people without a whole industrial apparatus. So um, the, the thought that this is in any way, shape or form fit for human consumption is, is really baffling in, in my mind. If we have a shred of of understanding of the whole whole process, so so the Seventh Day Adventists are are a key part of this story, and I did a, a reel on Instagram recently that um, you know went a little bit viral, and I made the the, the point that these recommendations um, that we've left with or that we're dealing with today in terms of the official dietary bodies. Um, recommendations of diet, which is rich in fruits and vegetables, nuts, seeds, legumes, plant protein, and seed oils, and low in red meat, 
saturated fat um, and cholesterol. And that is a, a carry-on or a legacy from this so-called Garden of Eden diet of, of the Seventh-day Adventists. So, so talk to us about um, how they, they fit it into the, to the picture. This is one of my favorite parts of the book, Max. Ellen G. White is this young girl, and she goes to church, and she describes in her autobiography how she'd come home, and she would just cry over what an awful person she was and a sinner and how she could never be right with God. One day she's walking home from school and she gets hit in the back of the head with a rock. She goes into like a short coma. It's knocked out for a long time. It's kind of unclear. But when she awakes, she's getting messages from God directly to her. And He's saying many things, but his main message to Ellen is the, the world will come to an end. The apocalypse is coming. We need to save as many people as we can by making their bodies pure. And the main way we can do that is to remove their sex drive. Their sex drive is caused by red meat. And she started a church based on this premise, the Seventh-day Adventist church. And she found a doctor, um, a young man uh, named John Harvey Kellogg, who wasn't a doctor at the time, but he had worked with her. He was a member of the church. And they became very close. And he became a doctor. And John Harvey Kellogg, is hard to, it's hard to overstate how influential he became. He was like the celebrity doctor of the time. He wrote books. He gave, he gave lectures. He was everywhere. And he was, I think the evidence would say, as complete sociopath. Some of the, he was infatuated with masturbation and stopping children from masturbating. And some of the things that he did included pouring carbolic acid on the clitorises of young girls, caging caging and tying people's hands. Um, he recommended in some of his writings that if masturbation continued in a young male to have surgery performed without anesthesia so that the memory of the pain would be associated with sexual pleasure. So he was very adamant about trying to repress the human sex drive. And Ellen White had an idea that what we need to do is develop an alternative to meat so that we could feed this to young people. It will repress their sex drive and save the world. That's how we invented cornflakes. Cornflakes were invented for the sole reason of preventing young people from masturbating and repressing a sex drive. A bit of irony in this is that it worked. I mean, it worked very successfully it does uh a diet high in in grains does repress the human sex drive um lowers fertility rates he eventually had a fallout john harvey with the church he discovered that ellen white actually did eat meat and she was lying to everybody she particularly liked fried chicken you find this with a lot of so-called vegetarian and vegans they they do eat meat a lot of them um he had a falling out with the church and then he became a eugenicist. So he advocated and was responsible for, I believe it was over 3,500 women in the state of Michigan 
being uh, the reproductive organs were removed so that they couldn't have children because he didn't think they were fit. So he was a real sociopath, but the Seventh-day Adventist church didn't stop with John Harvey Kellogg. A lot of the protégés or the people who came after became, including somebody named Lena Cooper, started the ADA, the American Dietetics Association, and formalized nutrition health in, in America. Um, to this day, the ADA largely controls and runs what we consider nutrition. So while they don't talk about masturbation all the time, they, they, they change their talking points from you know, carnal desires and repressing the human sex drive. It's still, um, they're still touting the same message. It's just a little more, more discreet. So it's, it's incredible, Matthew, because these people sounded like they were really just projecting their own uh, guilt in their own insecurity and their own fear about the religious ideas of the day. They were projecting those onto the rest of the society. And you mentioned the lineage of of the Seventh-day Adventists, and, and there essentially were a faction of what was known as a Miller, the Millerite movement or, or an, an offspring of a Millerite movement, which themselves were had uh, some kind of doomsday prophecy that you know the world was going to go and end in, unless – um, certain acts were taken to ensure uh, religious purity. Um, the, the Millerite movement fizzled out because their doomsday, you know, didn't work. Uh, and you know, it just seemed like the Seventh Day Adventists, their their kind of reflection or their implementation of the same ideas was to uh, project their, their guilt about their own sin uh, onto everyone in the form of vegan and vegetarianism. Oh, you bring up you bring up a very interesting point with guilt, and, and maybe we could get back to that later because I feel like guilt has been a tool for these movements to try to control the population and the aspect of food for centuries. But specifically, the Seventh Avestate Church. Look, they have their own church, so I'm libertarian leaning, and if these people want to abide by a certain group of dietary standards, all well and good. I think the issue most people would have and what kept coming up again and again in my research is how they were able to infiltrate the United States government and in doing so, impose their religious beliefs masquerading as very weak nutrition science that would then have an effect on the rest of us through first establishing the American Dietetic Association. But then you got to understand each one of these pillars is a foundation of another step. And you could, you could really make an argument that you could track Ellen White, John Harvey Kellogg, and their complete perversions and, and, and uh, pseudoscientific realities to the 1992 dietary guidelines that were imposed on every child in every public school in America. Um, and the effects of that are very difficult to uh, you know, overestimate because the metabolic illness in America is striking. I mean, our kids are fat. And anybody who grew up in the 90s, you saw your lunches switch from in schools, switch from uh, 
chicken fried in in lard to suddenly seed oils, uh, cheese on pizza was, was replaced by low fat cheese. Our whole milk, which came in the red cartons by started by Dwight Eisenhower, was replaced by fat free milk, which which nobody wanted, so they had to fill it with sugar. So it became chocolate or strawberry milk, and um, it's it's like these ripple effects, and I see them throughout throughout the Seventh Avenue State Church as like the head along with, uh, you know, agro, big, big corporations in the agro food industry. And then the government, which prefers us eating peasant food, to be blunt, um, because it masks the inflationary theft of its citizenry through money printing. I'm sorry, Max, I can't, I can't hear you. Sorry, and I'm really glad you brought that up, Matthew, because that's kind of the really the crux of the book. And um, so we're, we're building up to the story, but uh, what I think that the the Seventh Day Adventists, um, what you talked about, is that these dietary uh, dietetics associations and and this idea of masquerading it's it's almost like the classic bait and switch, which is you know you go up expecting one thing, which is impartial guidance about how to how to eat a healthy diet and you're just getting you know something completely disguised uh as the complete opposite so it's almost been that's the theme what we're talking about for i mean up until now uh, is that people are earnestly looking for honest guidance about how to live a healthy lifestyle and they're getting a steaming pile of um metaphorically speaking uh advice that is not scientific based in in rigorous uh science is based in this very unrigorous nutritional epidemiology that was influenced by the the seventh day um adventists so so we're up to about the 1920s and you talked about how lena cooper founded the dietetics association what what is the next step because i think we're getting close to incorporating um food the food industry um and uh, we we previewed how uh, Procter and Gamble were instrumental in forming the American Heart Association, but w- w- where are we up to in terms of this story? Well, we another key component in this was that you know, at the time in the 1920s, America was still largely on a gold standard. There was a brief period where we went kind of off it and on it, but up until 1971. There was some restraint on the ability to create money because even though Americans in 1970 could not go and redeem their promissory notes for gold as they were promised, um, foreign nations could. So the amount of money that could be printed, you could, we still managed to print more, more money than we had gold in our treasury, but it was, it was measured a little bit more. Um, and what happened in the 1970s was that when Nixon went off the gold standard, and the truth is, when you go through the research, he kind of was forced to. Um, he wanted to keep Vietnam going. But beyond that, when he looked at the treasury, he realized that if too many countries had brought in their notes for gold, for redemption, it would expose America as a fraud. Because under Lyndon Johnson before him and previous administrations, they had run up deficits that they had sent out more promissory notes than they had gold in their treasury. So all it would take was a few countries at one time 
trying to cash in for it to expose the world's biggest superpower as a complete fraud. So it wasn't so much a choice as a necessity. Um, and once that happened, the nation was empowered. Our political leaders were in America were empowered with what could be considered, I would consider the most powerful tool in the history of the world, which is the fiat money printer, because there's these laws passed where you have to use this currency and they could just print money as much as they wanted and pay their own debts or for, for whatever they needed. So there was this kind of race that began to um, control inflation, the perception of it. Because it, if you go through history, you'll see that people will tolerate a lot of corruption from their politicians. They'll, they'll tolerate scandal. Um, they tolerate war, unfortunately. But when food prices get too high, as we saw in Sri Lanka in 2022, you, they rioted. They threw their leaders out. There's been thousands over the past 10 years of food riots in Europe. Um, people don't take kindly to it. And in America, it's a very heated political issue. When food prices rise, the um, political party in power is often ousted. And the cycle continues. So the government's incentive is, since 1970, has been to, they, they had a choice. They could come clean and say, look, um, we have uh, this issue, you know, we are, we are able to do much with our economy and flood it with dollars. But the downside is the food that gives you nutrients is going to become far more expensive and cost prohibitive. They took a different route. They decided to alter the food supply. And through nutrition science and through the power of fiat, they were able to kind of tilt the scales through funding and through subsidies of the fiat money printer to, um, I, for lack of better words, to, to conduct what I view as a 50-year psyop to convince the people that the things that our ancestors ate for thousands of years is actually dangerous and unhealthy. What we should be eating are these newly manufactured grains that are stripped of nutrients and um, food that is generally would be considered peasant food in any other age and time. Um, that's why I appreciate I've I've seen several of your podcasts and you kind of you do a lot to punch through that, but it's it's difficult. And to get back to the Adventists, uh, you you talk about their studies and you're right. So. I know that most people are living their lives, they're working jobs, they're not going through these studies. But the difference between clinical, double-blind, gold standard studies and epidemiology studies, these, these epidemiology studies are observational studies. So people will see me drinking a two liter of Coke two years ago or 10 years ago when I would drink such a thing. And they'd be like, nobody would say a word to me. But if I'm eating a steak, I get all these studies cited to me. Oh, didn't you read? Didn't you see? And their epidemiological studies, the leading science on that still comes out to this day comes from a place called Global Linda University in California, who over the past few years has gotten $165 million from the federal government, the fiat money printer. And they use that money to kind always come up with studies that validate their religious beliefs because Global Linda University is run by, you guessed it, the Seventh Avenue State, Seventh Avenue State Church. So it's just this cycle. And 
it's really, you know, it's, it's discouraging on one end because there is a huge tidal wave of misinformation from these kinds of studies that pollute the airwaves. Cause that's all they need to do. They just need to pollute the airwaves and enough where we don't know what's going on. We're all kind of confused because you can go online right now and find a study that validates anything. And it's difficult. But I mean, my kind of rule of thumb is on on diet in general is if we if we weren't eating it 300 years ago, pro- probably not something we should be consuming. Yeah, <clears throat> and and I don't I don't want to make this a podcast about um, the the nuances of epidemiology, but I'll make a quick point now here to say that nutritional epidemiology is a highly unrigorous field, and the premise of a lot of their recommendations are these forms of studies which are observational in nature because it's extremely difficult unless you have an institution like a mental asylum, a mental health hospital or um, a hospital or a resident care home where you can strictly control all factors and then randomize two groups to different diets. It's almost impossible to do. And a couple have been done in the past, like the Minnesota coronary experiment, which is um, which is something else we can talk about. But it's very difficult to perform a rigorous dietary intervention. So what we have left is observing populations over time and then correlating their health outcomes to often what is a self-reported um, of a report of what they ate. So this is this is fundamentally unable to draw a causative claim because again we haven't. This is not a controlled experiment. So fundamentally, these uh, results are only good for hypothesis generation. They're not causal claims. Secondly, um, things like uh, recall bias, which is where you know you, you're filling out a form about what I ate in the past year. You have an idea about what you think they want you to say. So you conveniently forget all the booze and all the um, you know times that you went via the McDonald's drive-thru. You emit that from your food frequency questionnaire. Um, and then you, you know, we, we've got an, 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 a highly confounded um, uh, uh, data set um, and we can't draw rigorous conclusions from it. And I, I'm, it, it makes me quite, um, it, it really makes me, it fires me up because uh, if we're uh, approaching this idea of health optimization rigorously and like an engineer an engineer the same engineer who would put an airplane in the sky and is responsible for hundreds of people's lives if they looked at the quality um, and the methodology of nutritional epidemiology they would laugh in your face they would laugh in these people's faces because it is it's, it's not worth um I, I will say it's not worth the paper it's printed on so um w- what that means is that as you've said um so elegantly um matthew is that you 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 had decades of essentially um religiously influenced uh data that is simply cheerleading for a uh, uh, religious bias that that a pre preconceived notion that they that they've already already have um and that is a lot of what is yeah coming out of uh, biased institutions like um Loma Linda so all that to say um that th- th- this is the kind of Part of this, what you call a psyop, what I, what looks like a disinformation kind of campaign, that uh, that people, average people, have to kind of wade their, their their way through. And and I want to take it back to the point you made about inflation because um, I, I really want to um, spell it out for my listeners and people. People, I guess, ha- how would you define inflation? Because I, I think that's an, an important question before we um, before we go any further. 
And you made that in, point in your book, how, yeah, how the in, definition in, changed. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous. It, inflation obviously comes from the Latin inflatio <laughs> to expand. And inflation in the monetary sense has traditionally been known to as um, an expansion of the money supply. Yet, this has changed. Uh, today, inflation is defined by modern economists and Keynesians as, um, okay, I actually, I'm going to draw a blank on this because the, the definition changes so frequently. I know one of my favorite ones was recently where it involved the weather, like weather weather situations. Everything, every, so let me define it uh, to, to be simplistic. For a modern-day Keynesian econo economist, the inflation definition changes periodically, but the one thing that is never responsible for inflation is an expansion of the monetary supply. Like That's the only thing. Like There's Taylor Swift. There was an article, Taylor Swift, responsible for inflation in Brazil. Um, it, the list goes on and on, and it's, it's, it's – when they change the words and definitions, I mean, that should draw a serious red flag because – Math yeah. and economics should not be a soft science. It's numbers. We're dealing with numbers. Yeah. Yeah. And and so what, what you what you've said, and I'll again I'll package it up for everyone, is that in nineteen seventy one the US were in a, a financial problem and they essentially had um uh, expanded the money supply beyond which the amount of gold that they, they had was able to back that that up. So they had all these people who had claims against them that they essentially weren't uh, able to satisfy. So what President Nixon did was effectively defaulted by removing the backing or the what was left of the gold backing of the US dollar. Um if that if that if I've interpreted what you wrote correctly. Um That's and correct. and and as part of that all, all the prices in the economy rose and they they rose for all all kinds of things because as you explained in your book if you've got more paper chasing the same amount of goods or you know goods that are only increasing you know 5% a year in in line with you know Im improvements in technology and production then obviously it's a simple math mathematical problem then you're going to get rise in the pr price of these goods so what what the US government did at the time was rather than admit that hey guys um we, we messed up and unfortunately now you, your steak and your eggs is going to be more expensive they instead of admitting that they uh, essentially told everyone that the steak and eggs wasn't good for you. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And and I know this sounds completely crazy, insane to a lot of your audience. I'm sure it does. But uh, it it was really it was you got to think of it like this. So before 1970, there was um, the Seventh Day Adventist Church, and they were pushing this, and corporations were funding nutrition signs, and they were pushing this. Still, in 1970, the majority of people ate, meat, ate a lot of meat and they ate a lot of eggs and they weren't scared of saturated fat, despite these two forces. But when the separation between the dollar and gold occurred and the printing of dollars just continued and continued, at that point, a, a titanic shift occurred because the fiat money printer was then weaponized. And the fiat money printer isn't just, you can't just think of it as a machine that spits out dollars. What it really is, is the wealth and work and productivity of the entire nation. 
And it, actually, you could argue that it's the entire world because the dollar is the second, the, the primary currency that the other currencies around the world often pin themselves to. So instead of just saying, yeah, I mean, look, guys, things are going to go up, but boy, we have a lot of money to throw around. They they did tilt, they leaned into corporate and industry, which benefits and profits far more off of Doritos than they do off me. And they could, cause they can print them like fiat dollars at scale. And then you have the religious groups, including, um, now it's like, there's been a weird union between, uh, the church or something, Adventist church and environmentalist groups and animal rights groups. So that kind of is this interesting coalition for different reasons, but they all have the same end goals, which is that we eat less meat. Um, so, I guess like what you're, you know, we talk about the studies, what you should really look at the studies as more of a press release, these observational studies, because they're either funded by corporations. I mean, if you look at the, uh, the USDA funding is 11 to one from corporations as opposed to taxpayers. And that's intentional. I mean, it's all intentional. If you look at, um, the dietary guidelines. Nina Teichel has did great work on this and uncovered that she's the author of Big Fat Surprise. They uncovered that she uncovered that ninety five percent of them have corporate ties. So it's not none of this is by accident. It's not. It's not like these groups just kind of screwed things up. No, they all have extreme vested interests, and they didn't have to meet in a dark, smoky room to make this all happen. It's just all in their interests. So it naturally all aligns. Yeah, and if we think about it this way, um, the meat or nutrient-dense food, which is uh, fully grass-fed beef, pastured eggs, um, uh, full, full, full cream, maybe even raw dairy, um, or all these unprocessed whole foods that get grown by a local farmer, sold in, in the local market, you know, five kilometers where, from where it was grown, there's no profit in that. There's no way that corporate corporations can profit off a highly decentralized food system in that as as that exists, but they can profit from growing corn, from the the, the fertilizers and the, the herbicides needed to grow corn, from the machinery used to sow a cornfield, from the process of turning that corn into high fructose corn syrup, then selling that as as, as soda or as Doritos. Um, you know, the same with sugar, the same with canola or, or soy. So. There, that's where the profit is, and and I made the point. I, I just released my episode with Texas Slim. Is that nothing really in my mind encapsulates the difference in what are so called fiat foods or these false commodities, um, as much as a jar of of uh, grass fed organic ghee, which goes for, you know, probably twenty twenty Australian dollars or fourteen uh, US dollars, and a bottle of canola or um or sunflower oil which goes for you know four dollars and you know the, the energy calorie equivalent they're equivalent in perhaps but the order of magnitude of the price difference between those two products reflects um this massive disconnect and that price kind of difference that um these institutions well the, the, essentially the u.s government um were trying to make up by the dietary recommendations because they're essentially trying to make that four dollar uh canola oil bottle um equivalent to that twenty dollar jar of grass-fed ghee by kind of diluting these 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 signals as as we've just 
just discussed. And I, I really, I really see these the animal meat and these unprocessed foods that I just mentioned. They're, they're the most convenient punching bag. And and you've talked about, um, we've talked at length about the SDAs, the Seventh Day Adventists, but it's also the food industry. It's also um, the actual agricultural lobby of the corn and the soy growers. Uh, it's the environmentalists that you talk about. Um, you know, I, well, I believe his name was Paul Ehrlich and the, the kind of um, idea that the world is going to end. Um, we're going to reach peak oil, then we're going to reach uh, you know, there's always another catastrophe on an environmental point of view that distracts from the more acute environmental problems. Uh, and then there was Ansel Keys in the, in the American Heart Association. So it's almost like everyone is punching on to the the, process, the unprocessed food and the wholesome nutrient-dense food because it's all in their interest. As you mentioned, there's no smoky room here. There's no smoky room with cigars and conspiracies. Uh, there's only a convergence of interests that all um, – Profit or benefit from uh, from from punching the the bag that's uh, red meat and saturated fat. And you have a guy like John Yudkin, who was a, a fantastic um, nutritionist in the the fifties and the sixties and early seventies, who, who who was from London. He did really good work in the field of nutrition and discovered that look, it looks like there's a far higher correlation to sugar and metabolic disease than than meat. So what happened to John Yudkin? He lost his funding. He was destroyed. His reputation was just, he was laughed out of uh, academia and he, um, he was once very prominent and kind of died in relative obscurity. And that is the power of fiat largely, because what they were able to do was just flood the zone with money, flood Ansel keys. And a lot of these, um, these these so-called nutrition um, magazines that would come out, and these nutrition uh, the, the, the 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 data co- compilations, it's it's very 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 manipulated on behalf of industry. And in one example, the New York Times did some great work, and I think it was 2016. They revealed that one of the major studies that came out that told us that um, saturated fat was bad and sugar was good was paid for and manipulated by the sugar industry. And Ansel Keys was one of the scientists, I mean, who, who did that. And it, it, but I mean, this wasn't just something that happened back then. It continues to this day. We have this horrible human being, uh, Dr. Fatima Stanford, who appeared on 60 Minutes in January of this year and on a segment on o- Ozempic, which is a drug that you inject monthly for for weight loss and she said the science is settled and people no longer control obesity it's out of their control it's a brain disease so your lifestyle and your habits can't do anything to affect your health outcomes um it the, the segment didn't mention that she was getting how much she was getting paid from Ozempic. She was uh, she she worked for them as a consultant, but I mean it's it's so it's so many interests colliding at the same time. And oh, by the way, she's she's now on the dietary guidelines too. So like Dr. Fatima Stanford, and who who is telling the American public that it's not your fat fault that you're fat. There's, and there's nothing you could do about it because it's a genetic brain disease. Um, is getting paid for very conveniently by the drug 
that takes care of it. And why part of the reason I think this is so disturbing, and you talked about the guilt from the church, is that I just, in my worldview, I find that there's very few things that are more vile than to tell a human being that they're not in control over the most, most fundamental part of their existence, which is health, like the way they feel, who they are. But that's what we're confronting, and that's what's being confronted now. It's why I, I appreciate that you're out there um, getting getting your message out. Yeah, um, a, a couple points, and, and I'll I'll just uh, correct you. A Zempic or semaglutide is is a weekly injection, um, and it's a it's a GLP one agonist that obviously was was developed initially as a type two diabetes medication, and it's since sorry, um, weekly. Yeah, it's a weekly. Yeah, it's weekly. Oh, okay. um, yeah, but it's since 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 expanded to to weight loss, and what what you talk about is is so I'm glad you have is it is critical because when you convince someone that their problem uh, is not able to be changed by their own lifestyle, uh, this defeatist mindset, then it, yes, pe- people, it, the, the next logical conclusion is that you have to take this medication that we're going to make for you. Um, it, it really makes people reliant on it. And um, again, I talked to Texas Slim about this and he said the exact same thing. And it, it and I made the point, it's these people don't have a brain disease. Um, they're in the wrong environment. They're eating processed foods. They're, you know, addicted to technology. They're not getting uh, a uh, an, a regulated circadian rhythm. Um, and and it's not the first time. Um, and what and I'll, I'll make a little quick detour um, on about circadian health because there's a, a key pathway in the brain called um, or a gene product uh, called pro-opiomelanocortin, and it is one of the key regulators for um, regulating body composition, body weight, and appetite. And the various pharma companies have invented medica- a medication that specifically targets this pathway um, in an attempt to sell a drug that will help people lose weight. The thing is, um, you can make this product or the- potentiate the same pathway in your brain by simply getting into ultraviolet light, getting in the sun. In the sun, that's why the sun and circadian regulation is such a potent weight loss tool, uh, and 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 helps with that. But when you tell people that. Uh, they have a disease, whether that's you know obesity, it's genetic. Then you're really disempowering them um, from from doing anything about it. And I agree with you completely because it's 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 very in, insidious. So um, I, I actually highlighted a part of your book, um, and I'm really glad you brought it up because I want to hammer this point home. You wrote, foundational to an individual's self ownership is the perception that they control their own health, that through the foods they eat they can grow strong that in illness they are equipped with tools necessary to heal. Foundational to fiat is human dependence, surviving off a system that slowly drains the wealth of the many to benefit the few, that the expertise of authority serves as a substitute for one's own decision-making. Consequently, the role of personal responsibility as the primary driver of obesity and chronic and related chronic diseases has been sidelined, replaced by assurances from fiat health authorities that negative health outcomes are due to circumstances outside of one's control. So uh, we were on the same wavelength when I highlighted that passage, Matthew, because uh, isn't it so applicable to what we're discussing right now? It is. And I, I, I can't emphasize enough just how important I think it is. I think, to backtrack a little bit, I think for me, COVID changed a lot of my perceptions because I want, I look at the world through the lens of, of my own perceptions, obviously. And I, I don't think I'm a horrible person. And I, 
so I ne- I never think that people are bad. I, I always assume like good intentions on, on others, but the reality is I personally in the past, and I know I, I still probably do too much to a degree, but I've too many people outsource their um, decision-making to credentialed authorities based on trust. And these institutions are, 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 have betrayed us like severely. Um, you have a lot of our modern day nutrition science is built foundationally from Harvard School of Medicine, which was run by Dr. Frederick Stair, who was just a complete shill of industry. Uh, in his book, he bragged about coming up with $2 million from Kellogg's here and a million here um, while he's touting sugar as a healthy between meal snacks. And people still believe this. I mean, people will still talk about Dr. Frederick Stair's studies and to, to justify their behaviors, which are oftentimes are the result of being addicted to flour or sugar. And he was the leading health nutritionist for, for, for years and years. And this guy, he had all these credentials. I mean, it's Harvard. So you give people a pass. Like, I understand why a lot of people believe that sugar isn't really that bad. It's so it's a kind of okay. You can have some some sugar here and there every day. And you're, I, I think he said he, he ever, he said Coke was very like healthy for you. Um, but once we look at ourselves within nature, and this was a big turning point for me because I'm not a nutritionist. I, but I, I do recognize that I'm part of nature and part of a world and I'm not outside of that. And once you see that and that you don't need to outsource your decision-making to anybody, it's, it's all right there. And it's, it's actually crudely obvious what we should be doing and what we should be eating. Yeah. And as far as I'm concerned, anyone who's taken money from industry, um, no matter what that industry is, um, is, is tainted in their, um, in their view and their opinion. And it's simply not able to be relied upon to, to, to give an impartial, um, opinion. I think that's, that's, it's that simple. And, you know, you, you mentioned, um, Frederick Stair and the, the Harvard School of Public Health. And if there had, I mean, my, my interpretation or my reading of, of some of the, the missives that they put out, it's, it, it just reads like a cheerleading for, for, you know, the, for industry, essentially, you know, still recommending consumption of, of, uh, canola and soy and, and refined sources of, you know, linoleic acid rich refined sources of, uh, omega six polyunsaturated fatty acids. I mean, you know, anyone can go to, to, to YouTube and see the process that involved um, in in extracting these um, and the fact that no one was eating them until uh, 100 years ago. And then you, you, it doesn't take a, a PhD to realize that that's not fit for human consumption. So the the fact that such a esteemed and prestigious body um, has been essentially endorsing processed food consumption uh, is, I mean, it's, it is exactly what you said in terms of betraying the trust of lay people who don't either have the perhaps even the the intelligence or just the time to invest in in researching what what they should uh, be eating and it and it comes back to this idea of being essentially shortchanged or, or bait and switched because there was faith put in these institutions to um to 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 inform people of the correct the correct healthy dietary choice and um 
you just look at the statistics. I mean, in Australia, two uh, two thirds of Australian adults and a quarter of Australian uh, children are currently either overweight or obese. And if you graph it, and you know, from the 1980s onwards, it's just it's just up and to the right. And you know, once I, I plotted the Australian guideline dietary guidelines uh, on the same graph, and you know, there's no attenuation of those curve. You know, with those successive dietary guidelines, and in fact. You know, it, there was there's no. It's just it continues to go up on the right. So, um, obviously, diet diet is a key part of of why everyone is getting that that fat. Um, um and it's clearly clearly not working. So, uh, before we before we go a little bit further, I just wanted you to talk a, a little bit more about what happened exactly in the aftermath of 1971, because um the there was a, something happened with regards to one of the agricultural secretaries that you wrote in your book that i think really uh set us set you america on this trajectory of of cropping and monocropping which later spills down into processed foods so the politicians weren't unaware of this problem they understood that going off of the gold standard would result in an inevitable rise in the price of the nutrients that we need to live. And this would cause, an, a, this would become a political liability. So Nixon had a plan, and that was to, got this guy named Earl Butts, as you mentioned, the Secretary of Agriculture, and he instructed Butts to make sure that people had enough food. Because another factor I want to throw in there was that in 19. In the early 1970s, it wasn't global warming that people were worried about. That wasn't the crisis of that moment. It was actually overpopulation. And a book called Silent Spring came out. And there was another book about that, that uh, environmental book that basically posited this idea that we were going to run out of food. Too many people, not enough food. So he sent Earl Butts out to. Earl Butts had a slogan. Um, go big or go home. And in it, he, he incentivized America's farmers, which at that point was, were diverse. There weren't these giant agro farmers everywhere. That wasn't the American farming community. It was broken up by smaller farms. Um, he incentivized the consolidation of all these farms and he wanted corn everywhere. So that was incentivized through subsidies. And why the fiat part is important, because pre-1971, if you wanted to spend $8 trillion on corn, it had to be correlated with the gold in your treasury. So you could only do that by raising taxes and going to the people and saying, look, we, the corn industry needs our money. Here's our reasons. We have to raise your taxes. Um, or selling bonds, like corn bonds, I guess, could be a thing. But there was no other way to get the money. Like, you had to appeal to the people. You had to have their consent. Um, fiat removed that. They could just print it and, through the printing of the dollar, confiscate a portion of every single person's wealth who held the dollar. No permission, no vote. And what happened was corn became so cheap. And it wasn't just corn, it was soy and sugar as well. But corn was the main one. It became so cheap that everything in our economy began to become almost part of corn to the extent that it replaced sugar 
if you go to other countries, go to Mexico, Coke is made with like sugar. Here it's made with corn. It's because American policy through fiat has subsidized corn to such an extent. All the leftover corn is either being used as ethanol or high fructose corn syrup, which we were told was healthy when that came out, which is slightly worse than sugar. They're both very bad. Um, but that changed a lot because stores and gro uh, grocery stores began substituting out ingredients for these subsidized foods. They, they began subsidizing healthier ingredients for soy lecithin, for high fructose corn syrup. So if you go in the middle aisles of your grocery store in America, you find a lot of obese people in, in, in like scooters pushing carts that are products that are essentially soy, corn, flour, and then coloring and additives mixed in different combinations. It's like 90% of what you see in the middle aisles of the grocery store. You can directly tie that back to the subsidization of these industries, which then creates these um, political interest groups who begin funding politicians. And it, it's this cycle that grows more powerful and more powerful. So anytime presidential candidates campaign in Iowa and they no one dare talk about removing corn subsidies because they'll lose the funding of their campaign and it all hell breaks loose. Um, so it's, 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 it's very, what that period you talk about was very pivotal and ongoing. It's continuing, but at a much greater rate, but there's so much noise in the world that it's hard to focus on how much of the, I guarantee you that 19 out of 20 people have no idea uh, how much, to what extent corn's being subsidized, but that is their money. Like, because just because it isn't directly taxed from them, the taxation of our money is only a small part of what's taken from the American populace. The main taxation in, in Australia, you're connected to the dollar. So your currency, we take from you too. The main part of it is through the inflationary theft of the purchasing power of our dollars. Each time they double our money supply. Yeah, and uh, I think about, or a good way to think about the the effect that this inflation is hap happening having is imagine, um, imagine if you're a shop owner and you or a restauranter and you're making, um, you know, you sell uh, scrambled eggs with, um, you know, with bacon for for your cafe, and then you know, 1971 comes around and the price of everything has increased. As that cafe owner, you've got a couple of options. You can either Increase your prices and keep the quality of that meal the same, and have still serve you know four pastured eggs um, and three slices of of pastured bacon, um, and increase the price from you know ten dollars to fifteen dollars. Or you could keep the price the same, um, and instead either use less eggs, so your meal has shrunk from four eggs down to three or two, and three slices of bacon to two slices of bacon. Or you could substitute. Um, fully grass-fed soy-free eggs for cage eggs, or you could substitute the three pastured bacon for confined-fed, um, you know, uh, pork. So it's it's incredible to think about the insidious effect that this inflation was, was has had, and pro and still is having on on the on food and the economy when um, every single producer or every single restaurateur or anyone else has to make that hard decision in the face of rising prices what to do and what you've described and I think what we're hoping to help help the listener understand is 
the 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 dietary recommendations and the 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 commodities, these false commodities, um, these fiat foods that um, that you and, and Texas Slim talk about, are a result. They're a downstream effect of the watering down um, of the food supply in response to these rising prices that were triggered in the 1970s. If that's what, if I've in, interpreted your book correct, correctly, yeah, yeah, totally. And that's why I I dedicate the last three chapters to how Bitcoin in particular fixes this. And it, I'm not an economist and Bitcoin isn't necessarily the only thing that can fix it, but what, what would is a hard currency. And that's because it would remove the distortions. Uh, fiat creates kind of this bizarro world um, where everything's upside down. For instance, in 1910, if you were to take a $10 gold coin and bury it for five years, you five years later, you with reasonable explanation could, could, could expect that that $5 coin would be able to purchase more eggs and beef than it did when you put it in. The reverse is true. So the, the advice your grandmother gives you to save your money, to be prudent in fiat is actually terrible advice because your money in terms of purchasing power is devaluing by every day. We've lost 99% of our purchasing power over the past 75 years. That's ridiculous. So what, what it incentivizes is debt in the, the reverse... Uh, a hard currency, even if it were gold, I think Bitcoin's a lot better, but a hard currency attached to the dollar would change it because it would, it would, the distortions created by fiat would no longer be incentivized. There'd be no need to obfuscate the price, the rising cost of food because um, it wouldn't be going up. And there'd be no need to fund corn and soy because we wouldn't need in America an alternative diet and there'd be no need to be funding global and university to come up with bullshit studies that completely talk about how meat causes diabetes meat doesn't have fructose that's a ridiculous concept yet their interest isn't they they're not what i've learned and i've talked to some of the it, the conversations didn't go well i talked to some of the observational uh conductors of these studies their goal is never to appeal to people like you who can read the studies and understand them. Their goal is to get headlines in the media, and they're very good at it. How many – did you see the headline that meat now causes diabetes? It's been everywhere. Yeah, it, it, It's ridiculous, and it's, it, it's what we talked about. It's essentially just cheerleading for um, you know, a, a pre-decided or pre-ordained uh, you know, corporate – strategy a bottom line strategy that's that's profitable for the interest groups but i i want to really go back to that point that you raised about um the price changes with um if you use the opposite of of this fiat system and what you said is that if if you had a fixed amount of money that was fixed in units then the over time the value or the purchasing power of that money would go up so rather than being able to buy less stake over time you'd actually be able to buy more stake over over time and earlier in the book you you really gave a really good idea about the debasement or the change in in money after 1971 because you compared the kilograms of sirloin beef that you could purchase you know, pre and post those that that inflation moment, and the amount of beef that you could buy has gone down dramatically. And I, I would hazard a guess that not only the amount of beef has gone down, but probably the quality of that beef that you're buying for the same amount would also have gone down. And maybe it's got more antibiotics. Maybe it wasn't fully pasteurized. But it's incredible to think that 
if you had an opposite system that people, um, if over time, would be able to buy, you know, instead of four pastured eggs and three slices of bacon on that breakfast meal, maybe the same amount of money they'd also be able to get, um, you know, a, a, a slice of sausage in, in addition. So the meal could actually get bigger for the same price over time rather than getting smaller or getting diluted. I mean, that that is a fascinating uh, concept that I think most well, it's foreign to, to everyone these days because we don't live in a in a hard money, fixed money supply system that you've just described. In a fiat system in America, you don't own your dollar. Okay, so you're holding the physical piece of paper, but you don't own its value because there's somebody else down the street with a printing machine who prints as much of it as they want and doesn't have to consult you. Because of that, you have no control over the value of your dollar. So the ownership, in essence, of your productivity is a product largely of the state. So while our leaders are consistently perpetuating this myth and this propaganda to the American people that we're becoming richer based on paper accumulation of their their fiat wealth, in reality, we're becoming poorer and less able to afford the foods that humans thrive on. So in essence of food is the way they look at it. We live in a time of abundance, they tell us. But because fiat distorts everything to such an extent and creates this bizarre world we live in today, the reality is 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 worse. It's like in the 1500s when when obesity was was synonymous with affluence and wealth. Now it's really a sign of poverty. It's it's the sign of somebody who's depleted of nutrients because they've been following the dietary guidelines of America and getting their 8 to 11, 8 to 11 servings of grains a day. That's what our government tells us to do. That's a recipe for metabolic destruction. And again, I wish I could say that it's it's just some kind of sad oops of history. It isn't. It was intentional every step of the way. People profited. And the product in America is the human misery that comes out of it all. It's very um it's not very profitable for us to be healthy, to have self-autonomy over ourselves, to not be in the medical system consistently believing that everything wrong with us is a lack of a medical product, what they want, which is what they want to convince us of, to live independently and to eat as many nutrients as we can is the is is a recipe on their end for going bankrupt and losing a market. Yeah, and uh, on that point of of the kind of inflation and the and the red meat i think that potentially the way you've just described that or previously that the the inflation kind of definition is always getting changed i i think that if you have maybe a kilogram of fully grass-fed uh ribeye steak that should be the real marker of of inflation maybe you don't need to use anything else it's just like how much uh, how much does it cost to buy a kilogram of fully grass-fed ribeye and benchmark income, benchmark all these other economic metrics against that one? And then you can see truly uh, if if the standard of living in the in the society is rising or, or falling. And I think by that metric, it, it has definitely fallen despite what political leaders um, might have told us. I, I want to wrap us up on that point that you made uh, about the human face because 
it reminded me of a patient that um, a colleague of mine saw who for diabetes reversal, and he was in his late 60s, and he'd followed the advice to get rid of grains, to get rid of seed oils, to stop eating sugar, um, and he was well on the pathway to uh, losing his visceral fat, regaining his metabolic health, coming off these diabetic medications. Uh, and my colleague t- recounted this story to me, and the patient said to him, um, it's good, but you know, it's it's only twenty years too late. And it it was deep because it, it really spoke to this feeling of um of the fact that this is a bit of pill to swallow because yeah, I'm I'm healing, but you know, I, I'm this person was so far down their health journey in a preventable and avoidable way, had they received the correct and species appropriate dietary advice, low carbohydrate, plenty of red meat and, and healthy animal fat, um, you know, 20 years earlier, they, they this could have all been averted. So uh, it, it, I think that's a, it's a great kind of way to put a human face on this problem, this, this, you know, hour and a half that we've talked, which is there are real people on the other end of these economic decisions to remove the, the US from the gold standard. All this attempt at obfuscating inflation has real human consequences and real human victims. I think, yeah, that's that's heartbreaking, and um, yeah, I have a lot of compassion for for these people because it's it's they've been lied to and they've been lied to for decades now. But I have hope that we're kind of breaking through the matrix, uh, one crack at a time with, with podcasts like yours and Saifedean and Dr. Sean Baker and Nina Teichels. There's a small army coming and it's, it's, it's beautiful to watch is it's, it's in this very beginning stages right now. Um, but it's of, again, it kind of comes back to self-autonomy and people taking their lives back. So, and I, I appreciate you having me on and, and letting me, letting me share this time with you. Yeah, fantastic, Matthew. Let us know where the listeners can buy your book and where they can follow you. Um, I oh mean, I'm I'm really bad on social media. I have a Twitter, and I try to be clever sometimes, but it's it's kind of I'm on Twitter, Matthew Leshack, and um, so I'm I'm on, my books are pretty much everywhere where you buy books. Uh, Fiat Food. I I have a lot of books, but main most of them are all uh, in the uh, crime genre because that was. I, I believe this fits neatly into my crime genre. But um, Saifedean Amur started a publishing house, and I was his first author. So if you go to thesafehouse.com, you could actually buy uh, fiat food with Bitcoin, which is pretty cool. Amazing. Well, I'll include all those links in, in the show notes. Um, thank you very much, Matthew, for coming on and helping us uh, expose this uh, crime scene uh, so eloquently and interestingly. Hey, thank you. Thanks, Max. Keep spreading the word, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Regenerative Health Podcast. I hope this episode helped you better understand some aspect of improving your lifestyle for optimal health. If you enjoyed this episode, then share it out with friends and family. Leaving a five-star review on Apple or Spotify podcasts also helps spread the message. Thank you and see you next time.